Hi everyone, welcome to episode four of Performance Talks. I'm Simon Taylor and I'm here with my co-host Steve Nightingale. In today's episode, we're going to be chatting to Tim Rogers. Um, Tim is a good friend of ours and honestly one of the most experienced coaches I've ever met. Tim has worked all over the world, including in pro rugby in France and Samoa. He's worked at the Malaysian Paralympic Committee and with the Chinese Olympic teams, as well as working at the Australian Institute of Sport. We're going to be chatting to Tim about the role that younger coaches have in driving the industry forwards, um, issues around education and whether PhD is becoming the new normal for SNC jobs, and whether you, universities are doing enough to produce um, qualified coaches in the sense of they actually have the skills to do the job. This is a great episode and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks guys, very very happy to be here and, and catch up. It's been a, been a little while. Um, three people in three different continents at the same time. Um, I started as a strength and conditioning coach Back in the pre-internet days, back in 1990, um, did an undergraduate course uh, when there was only two or three courses in Australia at the time. Um, since that, I've worked mostly in professional sport, um, uh, rugby union and rugby league, uh, the sports that I've worked in the most, worked for a couple of NRL clubs, uh, professional rugby teams in, um, in France and in uh, New Zealand and in Samoa. Uh, also worked in Olympic sport, Australian Institute of Sport, um, New South Wales Institute of Sport in uh, Sydney, uh, Malaysian Institute of Sport, Chinese Olympic Committee. Um, I'm trying to remember where I've worked in Australia, but I think I've lived in, uh, in, in more than half of the states and territories of Australia through that period of time. So I've uh, seen a lot of changes, uh, seen a lot of uh, improvements. In, in the industry as well and, and had a great time. Uh, it's been a lifelong dream to be a strength and conditioning coach. I feel very fortunate that I've been able to do it as a career. Nice. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't even know where to start with your experience. It's We've had so many conversations and it's everywhere and around the world and, and it's awesome. One of the things we like to do at the start of uh, with any guest is just talk a little bit about mentors and you know, I want to ask you, like we ask everybody else, like who have the, been the guys that have meant, uh, you know, that have been mentors for you, but I know you've been in a position to be able to mentor other people. So I'd love to hear a little bit from you about sort of the, your ideas on mentorship. Yeah, probably a little different um, to a lot of strength and conditioning coaches. Uh, back in the very, very early days of my career, I, I remember somebody, I was working at a gym at the time, and uh, the manager of the gym made the point about the secrets of the fitness industry aren't in the fitness industry. So I actually looked outside of strength and conditioning coach for people to learn from. Um, so a couple of the people that I did, uh, Professor Keith Lyons, who um, sadly recently passed away, he's basically the father of performance analysis. His experience went back to the 70s and 80s where he was actually um, cutting up tape physically cutting tape for, for the Welsh Rugby Union program. Um, Keith really opened my eyes to, to how we can use performance analysis information um, to inform strength and conditioning, 
uh, how it's not just our our tests, our strength tests, our speed tests that tell us how 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 does it actually apply in the real world, and and that's information that the performance analysis people are, are collecting. So Keith was definitely one. Um, two physiologists, definitely um, Dr. Kenneth Graham, who was the head of sports science at the New South Wales Institute of Sport for about uh, I think 23 years or so. Um, I learned a lot from him about the pure sciences and how they apply. So he had come from a pure science background, um, biology and chemistry in particular, and then gone into sport. Uh, so he was definitely one, again, that opened my eyes to looking at how, how we can actually use research. Um, and always a good guy to just bounce an idea around. Um, he was very big on looking at what's already been done, not trying to reinvent the wheel. Um, also in the physiology area, uh, Professor David Pine, who was uh, with the very successful Australian swimming program for about 25 years. He's now at the University of Canberra, uh, stats genius. Um, found him really good for looking at research uh, and, and how I can apply that. Uh, my current um, PhD supervisor, um, Dr. Martin Beaven, he comes from a chemistry background, very big on how, how we can use applied research um, my other supervisor, uh, Nick Gill, a lot of people would know Nick from the All Blacks. Again, extremely applied, um, but has a, an, an incredible understanding of, of how we can bridge that gap between the two. Uh, and another one was, was my boss at the Australian Institute of Sport, Julian Jones. Julian is a strength and conditioning coach, but the main stuff I learned about him was, was how we can understand the, the politics, I suppose, of sport and big organisations and how we can fit in. And, Learn a hell of a lot from him when I was working there. Um, I kind of have an interesting take on on being a mentor um, that you don't choose to mentor someone; they choose you as a mentor. Um, so it's pretty important to act in a way where you're very supportive, where where someone can see you as a potential mentor. Um, it's really a privilege, a privilege when someone decide looks at you in that way. Um, it's it's something that I don't expect people to see me as a mentor, but I want to act in a way where I'm supportive, where they could potentially look at me in that in that mode, if that makes sense. Well, wow, that's uh, quite quite a list you've got there, Tim, of uh, uh, sort of standout practitioners that you've worked with in the past there um i love the fact that a lot of those mentors and people that you look up to actually have a, a variety of experience and education and um you know you see them as a, a great sort of guide not just in the um the kind of academic or practical aspect of simply just putting together a training session and coaching it but actually in the wider um, sort of the wider job role and how other things factor factor in. Um, absolutely fantastic. I think, I think it's also important when, we, when you're looking at mentors, you're not necessarily going to meet all the people that you can look to for as mentors. I'm, um, for example, really interested in, in the way that we coach, the way that we use language. Um, so researchers like Gabriel Wolfe, um, uh, Nick Winkleman 
and, and the work that they've done with the way that we queue exercises, for example. I, I've never met either of those two people, but I've read their research and whenever I see something that they've done, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested. Again, that's not pure strength and conditioning, it's, it's motor learning. So um, I think there's more to what we do than just the sets and reps. Sure, you need to understand those, those things, um, but you also need to look at how other things can impact and affect that and, and improve them. Yeah, I think it's, like you said, it's definitely a privilege if somebody chooses you to be a, uh, you know, to be a mentor. I, I have them, I think everybody should have them. And, and there are guys that, again, like, I don't think necessarily, I don't, I, I'm not sure people go out and, and pick one person and, and decide and be like, that person's going to be my mentor. But, you know, I've, I have guys who I lean on all the time who um, are just you know you you like what they do and, and you can relate to what they're trying to say and and like you say they're a, they're a good person and, and they're um a good representative of, of what they're doing in the business um and yeah and, and i would you know be honored again like i've had people come to me and say oh you know you've been a huge mentor and it's like wow like i never even thought about myself like that i like mean maybe i should think a bit more about how i conduct myself uh you know in the public eye a little bit but yeah it's uh it's awesome i i think it's so good that that you've had both of those experiences i, I think the ultimate um privilege when you do that too is down the track that person is in their career they've been there for a while and you're thinking i would work for this person in the future um i think that's that's the real sign that you've had a had a good impact um I've got a couple of people that I, that I worked with, um, say Jan Legg, for example, who's at Australian Basketball, um, worked with me as uh, we always used to refer to ourselves as co-strength and conditioning coaches with the um, AIS basketball program. Um, lucky enough to work with guys that went on to play in the NBA and win NBA titles. Um, Jan is someone that if, if, if she was hiring, I'd happily go and work for. So there's, I think there's a great feeling when, when, the student becomes the master, so to speak, when, when they're working at a level where, where you would happily um, work, not just alongside them, but be happy for those people to be the ones in charge. Probably a weird way of looking at it. Most people wouldn't probably wouldn't think of that that way. But for me, when when I feel like the person's at an even higher level in some area than me, I, I think that's a really uh, a real positive. Well, I think that's a real sign of how... Um how mentorship really should work it's you know an informal kind of learning style and actually comes back to a little something we were talking about before we uh, started recording and um you know you were just talking earlier about how you feel that younger coaches actually should be better than us and helping to drive the the industry forward so i just wonder if you wanted to touch on that a little bit more yeah sure um I started this uh, this journey before Google was invented. I don't even know what was thought of. Uh, you couldn't watch um, uh, lectures online. You had to physically be in the classroom. If you weren't there, you had to borrow someone's notes. Um, there weren't many jobs. I, I remember as a as a high school student finishing my my high school and going to a careers advisor and saying I wanted to be a either a sports scientist or a strength and conditioning coach. And they said, there's no such thing. You're going to be a PE teacher. Um, thankfully, I didn't listen. 
and uh, and I've had the career I've had. Um, but there wasn't a huge amount of information back then. Um, you definitely didn't jump on PubMed or Google Scholar or Sports Discus. I, I was very fortunate at the start of my career. Um, the library at our university had one computer with the original copy of Sports Discus, which was literally a disc. And um, you could do a search on there, but if you wanted to actually read the article, you then had to go into the periodicals room and you had to find it and then you had to photocopy it. You didn't worry about how much data you had on your phone because your phone didn't exist. You worried about how much uh, credit you had on your photocopy card. Um, fast forward to now, that information's at our hands. Um, gyms employ strength and conditioning coaches now. We've got so many um, schools, private institutes, uh, private uh, businesses. Your opportunities as a strength and conditioning coach with that access to information, that access to experience. There was no such thing as, as an intern back when I started. So I think young strength and conditioning coaches are potentially in a, in a fantastic position to, to really take it forward with the technology they've got access to. But one thing that hasn't changed is, is the softer skills, your ability to coach, your ability to teach, how you can use your voice, where you position people, um, knowing who to give a pat on the back, knowing who to give a kick in the ass. All those things, all those skills are still there. They haven't changed. And really the methodology uh, looking back, I don't think it's changed a massive amount. Good training from 30, 40 years ago is still good training now. Good science from 30 or 40 years ago is still good training now. But the opportunity to become a become a good strength and conditioning coach to find people to look, look out for. When I started, I went looking for a mentor and it took me ages. It wasn't until um, a guy called Scott Campbell, who's... Uh, works in, in rugby league. He's been doing it for about 30 years. He's been to multiple clubs. It wasn't until I met Scott that there was someone that I could actually talk to about it. So it's um, definitely an opportunity for younger S&C coaches. And, and, and I firmly believe they're going to be better at it than I was. And, 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 I, and I firmly hope that's the case as well. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you're talking about the old journal rooms and things. That was, uh, you know, my experience at uni as well. Um, but I, I love I love that how you're talking about the the sort of softer skills and the the actual coaching and the relationship building with athletes that that's never going to change and that's the the real test of a a true a truly good coach. Um, we see now so many like kids coming out with master's degrees, but they haven't had the opportunity to actually learn um, learn those kind of skills. Um, I wanted to, to bring up the idea of the PhD and the um, the sort of new entry level for coaching these days as obviously like you guys are both working on your PhDs and over the years it's gone from you know everyone needing to have a bachelor's degree to now everyone needing to have a master's degree you know what what was your motivation for doing the PhD and you know is there a bit of a worry that the you know, PhD is going to become the new kind of entry level uh, qualification to be able to coach. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because I didn't start my PhD until I was um, forty six, um, and I didn't really start it until something motivated me a little bit. Um, the opportunity came up. Um, my two supervisors, Martin Bevan and, and Nick Gill at, at the University of Waikato. Um, 
they had a scholarship that, that, that was available. Uh, Marty and I worked together in Malaysia. So for me, it was opportunity. And also at 48, it's very much the challenge. I'm, I'm in the second half of my career and I, I just thought it'd be a fantastic challenge. I never thought I was smart enough. I didn't know enough about statistics. I didn't know enough about research methods. And I really was motivated for the opportunity to fill that uh, that knowledge gap, so to speak. Um, the topic that I was doing it on was off, is, is off feet conditioning. Um, I also feel I had a really good opportunity to do the research quite quickly um, because I knew so many people in the industry. I, I was very lucky to get all my collections done within the first year. Um, is it absolutely necessary? It's very individual. I know people that just wanted to fill the knowledge gap as fast as they could and, and then started coaching and became very good coaches at very high levels. I, I won't rattle off names, but I could for quite a while. And and then you've got the people like myself and, and Steve that are sort of coming into it further into our career because of intellectual curiosity. Um, I, th I think the good thing about about a PhD is is that level of independent thought and and doing something if you're going to commit three years four years five years whatever it is you really need to have an interest in that area um, masters uh, my masters was a research masters again it was something that really really motivated me um, my only concern I suppose is when people aren't getting their coaching experience at the same time and, and they're using the masters to, to to fill in time so to speak oh, i can't get a job therefore i'll get an even higher qualification um and then at the end of the qualification they still haven't got that experience they still haven't been in front of um uh, a group of athletes that may not be motivated to be there they're, they're training because they are told to train that the excitement and the joy for them is actually the sport itself which uh, if you don't have any coaching experience, makes it very difficult. I firmly believe we all should be trying to improve our education. And I think I think these courses are fantastic, but I think they need to go hand in hand. Um, um, Steve, you want to jump in on that now that, that you're on the same boat? Sorry for over yeah. taking over the questions. No, hey, it's like a, I always knew that you were going to talk forever. This is one, why it's going to be the most fun podcast I think we've recorded. Um uh, yeah, I, I think, I mean, you bring up so many points. I think you're right. If you solely go down an academic route and you can do that and and in certain disciplines within our field, it's possibly the right way to do things. But, you know, you can come in and you've done your bachelor's, you've gone straight on and done your master's, you've gone straight on and done a PhD and you've never stood in front of a, of a room of athletes and, and actually had to coach anybody. And those people get found out so quickly and um i just think that that if you have it, it's about what what's what are the reasons why you're doing it right and and you know i'm the same i i finished my undergrad in 2009 finished my masters in 2012 and i guess i always felt like i wanted to do a phd but it wasn't i started mine in february of 2020 and it it's only really because all the kind of pieces fell in together. So I, I had the interest. I kind of was working in pro sport. So I had the athletes in front of me. I had a kind of 
burning question that that I was interested in, and, and all of those pieces kind of um, managed to fit together. I think it's an interesting one about is it a, is it a, like an entry requirement or is it going to go that way? It's hard because I think a master's absolutely, but you know a PhD might get you noticed more when you're applying for a job, but you're going to get found out really quickly if you if you give an interview or you have to go in and do a practical session you know these guys can can get found out really quickly um i'm not gonna bore too much on on what i'm doing but tim i was just gonna ask um what's kind of can you fill us in a little bit about what you're doing I, I, we've spoken before a little bit about off-feet conditioning and i'm gonna be honest i still don't really have any idea of what it is so kind of fill us in a little bit about that Yeah, um, just just one thing I'll add. There's there's more than one pathway to to get to a PhD, and and some of the people I know that have gone um, purely down that academic arm and then crossed over have been absolutely fantastic. And and some people that have only stayed in the academic arm, they're people that I've learned so much from as well when it comes to the research side, when it comes to statistics, uh, learning about. Um, a, critically thinking about research as well. So there's definitely positives and negatives about both sides of it. I, would, I wouldn't say one's correct and one's not, but if you are planning on coaching, you've got to coach, even if it's volunteering. You, you learn a hell of a lot um, working with amateur athletes that aren't relying on an income from the sport. The, the motivation's going to be very different. Um, I recently... Um, in doing the PhD, went back to semi-professional uh, sport in rugby league in Australia. It's kind of like uh, the championship in, in England. And it's been a fantastic experience as well, but a, but a much different set of challenges. And I've, I've probably um, in the same boat when it comes to off-feet conditioning. It's actually not very well defined. Um, one, of, one of the research projects that we did um, was actually to ask coaches to define it. Um, we did a, um, a survey, got 150, 160 replies, so pre pretty pretty good number um, when it comes to sports research. Um, we found that the definition of, of off-feet conditioning that people use was it was any training to reduce the load on the lower body, reduce the load on the legs, or reduce the running load. Um, Everybody used it. I think of the respondents, 98.7% said they used it in some form, whether it was as, a, as an alternative conditioning tool, um, whether it was an adjunct conditioning tool, uh, whether it was a, a return to play tool. Um, but it was just a little bit loose and not heavily researched. It was researched. There was... You know, a, a dozen or so papers that, that tied in directly to what I was doing and obviously mixed uh, mixed results in that because you've got different populations, different um, uh, protocols. Um, we wanted to look at it from an acute point of view. What's the effect of one session? What's the effect of, of, a, of a training um a training study, so over an, over an extended period of time, how is it different for a beginner compared to a um, uh, an experienced athlete, you know, someone that's uh, working in team sport, 
how is it different to court sports? How is it different to combat sports, for example? So we had a pretty broad scope. Um, the equipment we decided to use was Watt bike, um, basically because we knew they were going to be reliable. They're pretty unbreakable. They're fantastic machines. Anybody that's trained on one knows that they can be a fairly brutal piece of equipment. Um, and uh, at the moment, I'm, I'm in that fun world of writing it up, which should take about another another two or three decades. Not a quick writer. Sound like me and my typing. My wife, since we've been working from home, my wife's been constantly on at me because I type with one hand. <laughs> um, that's a, a, yeah, that's awesome. I'm glad you managed to get all the data collection and everything done. It's a really interesting, uh, really interesting topic that you're working on. Um, one one thing I wanted to bring up with both of you regarding the the sort of PhD and the research that you're both doing is as coaches, we're always striving to, you know, use research to inform our practice and inform our coaching and, and use that to make better decisions to help improve us as a coach. Um, but do you feel that having more applied experience can actually help you with the research and make, um, help inform the research process? Yeah, um, I, I think it's it's absolutely critical. Um, I, like I said, I've wanted to do a PhD since 2012. I probably changed my idea of what I wanted to do it on a half a dozen times throughout that. And that was because of my applied experience. And, you know, the, the most, I, I think, it, you know, a PhD is such a huge volume of work and you're going to write 80, 90, 100,000 words that you really need to be invested in that topic and you you have to be interested. And um, if you're answering a question that kind of directly applies to you, there's no better way than, than doing that. So that's certainly for me where my, um, my kind of PhD research and, and interest came from was, was looking at the situation that we had at the club and going, okay, well, I can see a way that we might be able to do this better. And it's not just PhD stuff. I mean, off the back of that, I'm working on a, another sort of small publication now that's, um, it's just basically things I'm going to do at the club anyway. I'm interested to know the link between X and Y. And it, you know, as a kind of, you know, I think we're all kind of higher level thinkers and we've got that ability to to publish work and to, and to study at a higher level. So I think that, those things it's like if you're doing them anyway you might as well write them up i don't know how you feel about that tim i think there's there's been a fair few people where that's exactly what their um phd research has ended up being it was the things that they were already collecting and they've just put it into uh continued to collect it and and put it into a, a deeper form of analysis so I, I, I find it quite funny when coaches um particularly older ones like myself, old school ones that say that oh, I'm, a, I'm a practitioner. I'm not a, I'm not a scientist. I don't look at the science, but then when you actually grill them a little bit or they, or they continue to speak, they actually apply the scientific method really well. They, they, they have a question that they want to answer. They come up with some way to measure, they have an intervention um, and then they retest or, or they're um, collecting data all the time and tracking that over a period, which I, I think is a, 
a really good way of doing things. I always look at, at, at tracking data, tracking information is like having a GPS as opposed to pre and post testing, which is a little bit like um, having a map and driving for a bit and getting out and seeing where you are, whereas a GPS tells you where you are all the time. Um, so I, I actually find those comments about, oh, I'm not a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a practitioner, I'm not a scientist, when, when they actually are using good scientific um, methodology. And I, and I think it's, um, it's important that we always have that in mind as we're doing our job, because the information that we collect is, is to inform, it is to tell us where we are, how we can do things better. Um, that, may, that may be an advantage for, the, um, for a coach that goes through the process first and then becomes, uh, goes, goes through something like a PhD and then, and then transitions full-time into coaching is they have that skill uh, a little bit more on tap. Um, I, I think it's really, really important that we don't divide those two areas of being a practitioner and, and being a scientist because they, they are so, so, so tied up. And when you're doing one well, you're doing the other one well. They're, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, I love that, uh, um, that uh, analogy you just used of the GPS unit. I think that's a really good way of of terming it in terms of like actually guiding guiding our decision making and guiding what we're doing. Um, do you feel, do you feel like um, <laughs> do you feel like um, by doing a PhD, are you guys trying to carve out a specialism or a specialization? We were, again, we were kind of chatting about this a little bit earlier about the idea of the, um, the expert generalist versus the specialist. Do you see that as a purpose of a PhD or do you, do you feel like you can still, you know, be that generalist, um, even though you're going down such a deep, deep, um, kind of rabbit hole of a PhD? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a uh, two roads in a wood divide or whatever the, the, the um, frost poem is. Um, you can go down both paths. I, I kind of wonder if, particularly with everything that's gone on in the last, um, the last six months, whether the generalist is going to be more employable down the track because there just may not be as much money in sport as there used to be. So, so you need to... Um, you need to be a sports scientist. You need to be a performance analysis. You need to be a strength coach. You need to be a conditioning coach. You need to um, be an expert at actually planning. That there may not be an opportunity to have you know, 10, 15 staff at a professional club. I'm, I'm currently working as one person with a part-time physio. So I've had to understand the load monitoring, set the schedule, do the GPS, um, chase up guys with their injuries. Sadly, I've become the next, uh, the, the nutritionist. Um, I think we may come out of it, sport may come out of this whole experience of 2020 and, and nothing will change. But um, I know a lot of the sports over here are talking about the budgets are going to be reduced because of what's happened because there's been no income um, for the course of the year. Having said that, we still need the experts as well. We, I, I still like the fact that I can go to a physiologist to talk about a physiology area, that I can go to a performance analysis 
expert to understand that area as well. Um, so, so for me, I, I, I feel like I'm going to turn a bit more into a generalist with a with a, a strength and conditioning coach with a better understanding of the other areas. Um, but I still want to have, you know, if I've got a nutrition question, I still want to hit up a nutritionist to, to get that answer or read nutrition expert, um, you know, sports psychology as well. I, I still want to um, understand how people think and, and, and I'm going to get that from a, from a sports psychologist specialist. I'm going to get that from a, from a motor learning specialist about how they learn. Um, so, so it can be an either or. Um, I think if you want to work in sport, you may have to be a bit more of a generalist, um, but, but I could be proven wrong down the track. Do you yeah, feel like I that's think... a, oh, sorry, Steve. <laughs> Do you oh. feel like that's a bit of a, a kind of career progression uh, or like a natural career progression? Because I kind of feel like I uh, started off being a massive generalist, uh, sort of bit of a jack of all trades and really tried to, um, hone in, specialize a little bit, but then as I've got older and more experienced, I've actually broadened out again. Um, do you think that's a, a typical trend? Um, yeah, more, more than likely, probably when you, again, you go back 15, 20, in my case, 30 years, you, you were a generalist because if you spoke about performance analysis, people would be like, what the hell are you talking about? Um, so I think a lot of coaches go through that as they also develop their own knowledge. Um, I know there's a couple of guys in AFL that have gone down that path. Um, one club, they basically employ a number of, they refer to them as strength and conditioning coaches, but they cover everything and, and they're really, really advanced in it as well. These these guys are doing their own like programming in R and, and, and things like that. But they're also all in the gym when there's a gym session. They're all on the field when there's a field session. So um, I feel there's, if, if you go down a specialist path, you really need to have a passion for that area. Um, if you don't have that passion, you're probably going to um, uh, not have the, the, the same commitment to it. Um, now, I, I've been just a pure strength coach and been a pure conditioning coach and, and I've had a love for, for both of them. So I think I probably did the same path, mate. I went I went broader. I'm getting broader as I get older, not not just physically, but um, but uh, from a professional point as, as well. I'm, I'm really interested more now in um, not just in the whole evidence-based collecting data thing, but making that data mean something. Um, now does it inform my training? Yes, no. Does the same thing inform the coach? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, for example, I've I changed up all our GPS so the coaches don't get any numbers because because the, they've told me I'm not interested in these numbers. I don't know what they mean. So I've had to um, analyse it and then put it in a little bit of a red, yellow, green, um, whether it's a high running load or whether it's a high mechanical or, or body contact load. So... That's, that's the type of information they want about training. They don't want to know how many kilometres. They don't want to know how many metres per minute. They don't want to know how many accelerations over four metres per second per second. They, they want it in in plain English. And um, that's been a really interesting process as well. Not just can we collect data, it's how meaningful is that data. I've also got an incredibly limited budget, so I can't buy all the toys. Yeah, it's so interesting. I'm in the, a similar boat. We have a, a slightly bigger team with the Red Star, but I'm I'm the strength coach. We have a physio, we have a video, <coughs> excuse me, a video analyst. Um, 
and we all kind of help out with each other so during a game our video guy is up in the stands filming the game i'm on the bench with an ipad and if the coach wants to see something i'm in communication with with that video coach the physio and, and i work well together in terms of when it comes to rehab planning and he has a great understanding of s and c so i know if i have a group session and there's one guy who needs some sort of regression or some specialist work i know that physio can come in and help i'm just wondering you know for either of you guys do you think this is kind of like an indictment of the industry do you think and i, and I don't want to bash on universities but do you think it's been led by universities who I, I used to work in them and i know the pressure that we were put under to create more courses to get more students in to generate more money now is it that the universities have kind of pushed people into becoming specialists when actually that's they should possibly spend a bit more time training them to be generalists so not a bit of a a flaw in the kind of academic method um like it kind of seems to be like if you want to particularly if you go down a completely academic path of you know doing a phd straight after a, a master's then i i would argue that that's certainly the the case because you're missing out on the the exposure to training and the the skills that go with that so you have to have a, a research focus and you tend to see most people's research is then all in one field of study or one very particular topic. Yeah, I, I think it can be. And I, and I also feel for the um, people working in academia that are under that type of pressure that we, we all know about the publish or perish and, and um, you know, fee paying students and stuff like that. So I, I really feel for the people that are in that in that position um at the same time a lot of them are just so incredibly passionate about it that that, that, that drives drives them as well um i think i think there's a definite need to make sure that or to to prioritize uh students being industry ready so to speak um because only a very very small percentage i mean you have a dropout rate anyway for every course that starts not everybody's going to be there at the end um, and only a very, very small percentage of those, if any, are likely to go purely down that academic uh, arm. So I think, I think the first angle needs to be um, to be ready to go out there and work, whether it's with youth, whether it's with general public, whether it's in a specialist area like, say, cardio, cardiac rehab or um, um, exercise physiology. Um, strength and conditioning right down to being being a being a good personal trainer um i think i think that needs to be the first port of call whether it is in universities it's probably not for me to say but i can see how that gets corrupted a little bit because of the pressure that academics themselves are under to make sure that they put out x number of papers make sure they put out you know, get get a high university rating um to uh, get fee-paying students, those types of things. So I think universities are under a, a hell of a lot of pressure on that front that given a choice, I'm, I'm sure they'd rather not be under, but, but that's what's hoisted on them. Um, 
by you uh, by by the academic politics, so to speak. Yeah, I you know I don't want anyone to think I'm bashing universities. I had an enjoyable seven years working in them. Um, I think a large part of it as well, for, certainly in my opinion, is it comes down to that person who is doing the degree and who's going to graduate. And, and I just had a conversation um, earlier today with with a technical coach in hockey, and he was saying how he's, he, you know, is trying to network and he's he's reaching out to all these guys. And that's honestly, for me, been one of the best things that I have done. And, and one of the most useful things I've done is, and again, like one of my mentors, Adam Douglas, like he he now works for catapult and he is really instrumental in a lot of the stuff that i do using the catapult system with with the red star but i reached out to him years ago and it just so happens that he's a really good dude and so we struck up a friendship and then uh anytime i have a gps related question i've got a guy to go to and and i used to work with a nutritionist and again like you tim i'm unfortunately stuck doing nutrition in our club and you know Simon will be the first one to tell you I am not the, the best on my own nutrition. But, um, it, it, you know, if you have those, if you've made those connections, it's okay to be, you know, have a specialist body of knowledge in what you're doing, whilst also being aware of your own limitations and knowing the things that you can tackle and the things that you want to go on and, and get some help with, if that makes sense. That, that also ties into picking your mentors as, as you're coming through. I, I feel very fortunate to have the two supervisors that I've got at University of Waikato because they cover off um, both sides of it. They've, they've both got a lot of practical experience. I mean, um, Nick Kill's been with the All Blacks, I think, since 2007. He was involved in professional sport way before that. Um, Marty Bevan's worked in elite sports research, so to speak, um, all over the world, in Sweden, in the US, where he was working directly with elite athletes and collecting that information. So I think as you're looking for your mentors, you probably want to look for people that can tick off both of those that have, you know, they've got a, a nice high rating on ResearchGate and they've, they've got a lot of papers under them, but they've also got a lot of practical experience working with um, in, the, in the same environment you are. I mean, and the All Blacks have been the dominant team in rugby for for a very long period of time and are still in the top couple of teams. Um, and, and Nick's been working with them that whole time. And that, that's a very practical um, base to have. So I think um, if you want to work in, in sport, elite sport or any form, you need to look for those people that have that can tick both of those boxes because they are, they are out there. We are pretty fortunate that they're not completely divided these days. Yeah, I'd, I'd second that completely. And I say, going back to Adam, I should have probably mentioned he works for Catapult. He's just done his PhD. He's also worked as a head of high performance for Hockey Canada for a long time as well. So it's exactly that mix that you're talking about, Tim. I know that he can talk to me. There, there are a lot of smart sports scientists that work for Catapult. But I know Adam can talk to me on a level where he understands what I'm trying to get out of it. And I understand what he's saying because he and I have both shared that that similar um, experience. I kind of wanted to move on. We, we touched a little bit on it earlier, but um, I'd love to get, I know you've got some really, really interesting views on performance analysis and, and, and the topics come up a little bit 
for me personally, I really had a hard choice when I was looking at my masters because I could, I was torn between um, doing strength and conditioning and doing performance analysis. And I, I love both of them as industries. And I know that, that you and I have sat and had tons of conversations and you've got some really interesting points on it. So just kind of, I know that's a pretty broad opening statement, but fill us in a little bit about how you feel with, with performance analysis and how it links to strength and conditioning. How long you got? Two, three hours? Um, th th this is an area that uh, I suppose it started more looking at when I first started in, in my career and the first club I ever worked for, um, one of our players who was famous for his his work rate in the sport. This was in rugby league back in the early 90s. Um, did an incredible amount of work on the field, famous for being a war horse. Um, couldn't get past about level eight on the beat test. Um, and it wasn't because he wasn't trying. And what he achieved in the sport, it really, really showed that he, he wasn't unfit. He wasn't... Um, wasn't not physically tough. He, he was a he was a real solid player. Um, another experience looking at, at at a GPS score when they first came out. So this is back in the early mid two thousands, um, with a coach explaining what the results meant as we were learning about it. And I was I basically summarised it. Said oh, I think she she did really well. And uh, the coach said yeah well actually she played terrible. So it kind of got me thinking about the information that we collect and how it informs us about training and how it informs us about performance. Um, we've all had that athlete that can get a fantastic score in any test. They, they, they lift the entire gym and you just don't see it on the field. Um, you might have spent, I don't know, two months working on in the gym with somebody and, and they're... Um, their strength's gone up 20%, but then when it comes to the game, you're not actually seeing that carried out. So it, it, it got me thinking. So, so using rugby or rugby league, for example, there's no increase in the number of tackles they make. There's no increase in the number of runs they make. There's no increase in the effectiveness of them. What have I actually achieved? I've just made them better at lifting weight in the gym. So it got me thinking about what information we can collect directly from the sport, just like a performance analysis uh, expert, and how that can inform our training. Um, even even tried to come up with my own software program with a with a really good friend of mine, Dr. Michael Drew. Um, it just got me intrigued in that whole area of are we looking in the right places um, to tell us that we've got an, an improvement in performance. I, I still test my athletes to inform my training, but I think the, the gold information is actually in um, what the performance analyst collects. So something, for example, like um, in rugby, um, drop balls, forward passes, missed tackles, are they happening more as the game goes on? If they are, then, then maybe you've got a, a conditioning issue. Um, are they happening at the start of the game? That may be a skill issue or a tactical issue. Um, are they breaking more tackles? Are they being more dominant in, in the physical contact area? If not, then whatever you're doing in the gym doesn't seem to be transferring to the sport. Um, so this has been something that I've been looking at for you know, a good 
good 15, 20 years, a bit more specific, specifically, what information they, that they can collect that can inform us. Um, very successful rugby league coach in Australia, a guy called Trent Robinson, who's won a couple of um, NRL titles. I remember him talking to me when we were working at the same place. He was an assistant coach at the time about how I should look at um, more game footage and look at missed tackles, for example, and were players missing tackle because of a lack of technique, because of a lack of strength, or because of a lack of positioning. So that they weren't getting themselves in the right position to make the tackle. And then that could inform my training a hell of a lot better. Um, so that's just an example of, of how we can use performance analysis information uh, to inform the strength and conditioning program to get more precise in what we do. Um, we f You find that often what's missing is more the basics than the specifics though. Um, people just aren't fit enough. Their, their general level of fitness isn't high enough. It's not so much the specifics for most people. You will find the opposite as well. You will find people that have got um, a really high level of fitness, high level of strength, but they don't have the technique. And that's, that's something that the coaches need to, to take over. Um, it may allow us to be a little bit more time efficient. We're not, we're not working on something that they've already got. So I think that link is, it's, for me, that's the most important thing. That, that's the area that I'm most interested in um, when it comes to the strength and conditioning field is what information can we get from performance analysis that's going to tell us how our program is, is progressing and are we on the right track. Increasing bench press by 20% may be good, but it may not give us the whole pictures and we, and we need to look a little bit broader and told you I could talk for a long time on this topic, guys. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. You can always talk, Tim. <laughs> um, it's, oh, it's great. It's, a, it's such a good um, example of like, application within the, within the field. Um, I think, you, you know, you raise a really good point there about um, sort of getting lost in numbers and metrics and actually is something important because we can measure it or is it important because it makes a difference in what we're actually trying to achieve, right? Like you mentioned there, like if you just, if your bench press um, load goes up, great, but does that have, does that have an impact? Are we putting importance on it because it's a number that we can measure versus its actual um, importance and application. Yeah, it's the, it's the classic, um, not everything that, be, that can be counted counts and not everything that's, that counts can be counted. Um, I think Einstein gets credit for that, but it may have been someone else, I'm not sure. But, but there's, there's definitely some, um, some things that we collect that are very nice to know, but we don't need to know them. And there's definitely some things that we need to know that we, that we aren't knowing yet. And I, th I think it's a definitely an evolving area. And I think that's where the strength and conditioning coach needs to use that, that term coach a little bit more, think like a coach, talk to the coach. Um, one of my regrets is not spending more time hammering coaches with questions about their style of play and the things that they think are important as, as a, as, as a strength and conditioning coach, that's actually been a, a mistake of mine, I think, and I, and I would love to make sure that I don't make, make that mistake in the future. So when I, when I took up the current role, which, which again is, is the tier below um, the NRL, 
when I caught up with the coach, we, we knew each other previously. We caught up in Canberra and, and I just hammered him with, how do you want to play? How do you want to attack? How do you want to fend? How do you want to play transition? Um, partly to make sure that I was on the same um, wavelength, but also use the same language as him. So I have an understanding of what each drill he's going to do is, what the load is and how, how I can fill in the gaps, so to speak. Um, there's, there's a big need for us to make sure that we're speaking the coach language, not necessarily the coach speaking our language. Yeah, I think that's really, really true. We've talked about that on a couple of other shows and something that I'm really keen on is factoring that kind of um, discussion into your needs analysis. I often think if it's, if it's something you try and come to later, you've kind of missed the window um, to really get the, the coach on board with what you're you know, with what you're doing, I think it's really important for us to be, like you said, speaking to the coaches from day one, getting an idea of what they want. Um, otherwise, you have no idea if you're actually meeting their their needs for their um, their vision for how the team's going to operate and play. Yeah, I agree 100%. It's funny because uh, I, I did a podcast yesterday and I had a question from somebody saying, what's the first thing you do as a as an snc coach going into a new club and my answer now is very different to what it would have been and now it's find out what the coach wants speak to the coach and get on board with what they want because you, at the end of the day whether it's whether it's an ice rink or a rugby pitch the game is one there it's not one in the gym and like you know we all know we can write programs that look incredible on paper but if those aren't uh, transitioning over to what they're doing when they're having to play the game then it's it's uh, you know an exercise in futility like i'll give you an example we um in our league there's a company trying to sell uh, a new sort of performance analysis package and they came and did a presentation to us and they said oh like listen we can tell you who the um fastest skater was in the game and we can tell you who the slowest skater was in the game and so our assistant coach kind of humored them a, a bit and said, okay, so who was the fastest? He said, oh, it was this guy. It's like, right, but that guy also gave away two turnovers and we lost the game 2-1. So what are you actually telling me? And I think, you know, the, the things you've said are just, it's a perfect like application, isn't it? Like we need to know that where we fit in it and where we, in the kind of industry that we're in uh, and within a team structure, and where we fit is that we need to make our players do their sport the best way that they can do it. And to do that, you need to actually know what's happening when they're, when they're doing that sport. It's, it's interesting. Um, you also find your best performers don't necessarily have the highest strengths, particularly physically but they tend to have no weaknesses. There's nothing that they can exploit. I, I remember talking with, a, with an NBA strength and conditioning coach this is back about 10 years ago, but he, he, he worked through the 80s and the 90s where there was some legendary players. And I said, what's the difference between the superstars and the non-superstars? What's the difference between the good and the great? And he thought about it for a little while and he said, the great can exploit weakness, the good can't. And the great don't have those weaknesses. So um, it kind of informed me about you don't necessarily have to get people 
the strongest they can possibly be, the, the aerobically fittest they could possibly be, the fastest they could possibly be. All those things take time. Genes and uh, what your parents passed on, do you have a fair bit to do with it? Um, but can you shore up the weaknesses? And that, that was something that I really noticed with, uh, with, a, with a team like the Melbourne Storm, who are a very successful rugby league team in Australia. They've, I think they've made the, the playoffs every year by one since 2003, won a lot of titles had some legendary players and then working with those guys, they didn't have weaknesses. That was the amazing thing. Um, their strengths were, were very good, but they had absolutely no weaknesses. And, and I think that's a, a, a problem that we fall into of, uh, you know, my guy can squat 240 kilos or my guy can squat 250 kilos. Um, we can fall into that a little bit and number chase when, when our job should be to, to shore up those weaknesses. So there's nothing for uh uh, an opponent to exploit, and and that's that's the coach's job as well. They have to shore up the technical and technical weaknesses. Um, so yeah, for me, it's it's that lack of weakness is is probably the most crucial thing. Nice. That sounds like a good place. I think to end it. I feel like you know we've sat in rooms for hours and and days on end talking. So I imagine we're going to probably get you on for uh, for part two at some point soon um we kind of wrap it up with contact and stuff like that now i know you're uh you kind of shun most social media tim but is there kind of anywhere that somebody could reach you if they're trying to want to get hold of you and, and have a chat yeah sure um i've got social media but it's got absolutely nothing to do with strength and conditioning coach it's it's my other passion which is photography so people want to go and look at some nice photos um my Instagram's Oh My Images Australia, but it's got nothing to do with strength and conditioning. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, and probably the best email is uh, performance at mackaycutters.com.au. Um, probably guess from the last 55 minutes, I quite like a chat, so I'm more than happy for people to jump on that one if they want to. I've uh, just, just on your photos, I remember one you took in Shanghai um of the bund reflecting in the water it's it's unreal so i would just for anyone who likes photography go and check out tim's uh tim's photography because it's unreal um yeah as usual you can find me i'm on instagram and twitter it's at snne83 uh simon yeah Likewise, I'm also on Instagram, but you won't find a whole lot. Um, unfortunately, my pictures are not as good as Tim's, so I would definitely suggest you check his out before mine, probably. Um, but I'm Simon underscore J underscore Taylor and also on LinkedIn as well. All right. I guess that just leaves us to say thank you so much, Tim. Uh, absolutely awesome, as always, talking to you. It's been far too long. I think probably a year and a half since we had a catch up. It's been unreal. Thanks for having, uh, thanks for being on. Thanks guys. Really enjoyed it.